Welcome back to the Washed Up Journalist podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Legacy Preservation. Since 2006, Legacy has helped families and businesses across the country capture their history, their most important stories, in book form. Legacy Preservation. We write history. Yours. My guests today are Jeff Testerman and Daniel Freed, the authors of a new book set for publication this February, titled Call Me Commander, a former intelligence officer and the journalists who uncovered his scheme to fleece America, published by Potomac Books. Jeff Testerman is a longtime investigative reporter, now retired from the St. Petersburg Times, where he was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize five times during his career. The newspaper's investigation exposing the U.S. Navy Veterans Charity Scheme, which was the impetus for this book, earned the investigative reporters and editors' top award for public service. Daniel Freed is a senior producer for CNBC's white-collar crime documentary series, American Greed. His television and print work has been aired or published by PBS, Current TV, Amazon Prime Video, and the Los Angeles Times. I had a great time talking with both these gentlemen, and I think you'll enjoy the conversation. I also think you're going to love their book. I read it in preparation for our interview, and this story has all kinds of twists and turns and deceptions. It reads fast, and the story keeps you entertained throughout. So with that, here's my interview with Jeff Testerman and Daniel Freed. Well, Jeff and Daniel, thank you both for taking some time to, to speak with me today about your new book, Call Me Commander. And there's a lot to unpack with the book. It's, it's just an interesting story with all kinds of twists and turns. And we'll get into that in a minute. But I'd like to actually back up and start with each of your backgrounds in, in the journalism industry, um, how you got into this racket. And um, if you could maybe kind of give me the two-minute uh, elevator speech about your your track along the way. So so Jeff, let's start with you. I, I I'd love to hear how you first got into the business, and um, and if you did you spend your whole career with the St. Petersburg Times, or was that kind of a last stop? Uh, first, uh, John, great to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, my whole journalism career was with the St. Petersburg Times. The route there was uh, circuitous, to say the least. I was a doctoral student coming out of college, uh, kind of. Dropped that and said, where does this take me? I can't be sure. Uh, launched into a series of uh, jobs that uh, put some food on the table. I was a construction worker. I was a freelance photographer. I spent, uh, gosh, four or five years as a, uh, a junior executive at a savings and loan. And uh, at some point, I decided I really wanted to grow up and find my my place in the world. And, and uh, writing was what I wanted to do. And uh, this would have been in the late 70s when the newspapers counted the money as it came in and hired people at will and sent them on trips. And uh, it was all uh, all pre-digital age uh, when the advertising went away. And so I walked into the Times uh, back uh, 1978 and walked in and said, I wonder if I could do some work for you. And the editor 
a fellow named uh, Gary Gorman said to me, well, let, let's see your clips. And I said, uh, and I'm not making this up. I said, what do you mean by clips? I didn't have any clips. And uh, for some reason, uh, they gave me a feature story to go write. and I could take pictures. And so I went out and shot a picture and uh, spent uh, four or five hours on a one-hour story. And they liked it, and they gave me another one. Ultimately, I uh, was able to uh, transition into uh, part-time and then a full-time job. And I was sent to the outline bureau, and I was sent to, to cover the county commission and uh, learned the ropes very quickly under an editor by the name of John Costa, who uh, showed me that uh, public records uh, is the way to uh, get underneath a story. And uh, I had a good business background. Uh, I'd had, uh, unlike a lot of journalism students, I knew what, uh, you know, a balance sheet looked like and uh, what taxes are. And so this was uh, uh, a big help to me as I got into it. Uh, I, I did a number of uh, beats, uh, as we all do in the, in the first years. Uh, you night cops, uh, you know, county commission, school board, the whole thing. I, did a stint as a city editor, and ultimately found myself about halfway through my career into investigative reporting, and uh, really hit my stride uh, with that when I was given a, a few weeks or a few months to put together a story that involved uh, connecting a lot of dots and putting together uh, big, giant files of complicated uh, information uh, to to write some story. And, uh, I, uh, that, that was, that was my legacy. And, and, uh, probably the story we're talking about today, uh, call me commander was, uh, as good an investigative story as I've ever worked on. And it turned out to be the last one I worked on before I retired. So, uh, great way to go out. Look, looking back on it, it sounds to me just just reading between the lines that you must have been a natural writer. Did you, do you think of yourself as a natural or was it, was it awfully painstaking in those early years? Tough question to ask uh, an alum of the St. Petersburg times where uh, great writers are born and trained and then go to work for bigger papers and uh, win Pulitzer's at the Washington post and the New York times. I was an adequate writer, but I was a really good researcher and uh, a first-class cynic. And I was able to uh, uh, sense a story, uh, feel a story was uh, around the bend, and know how to get uh, to the bottom of it. And then, uh, frankly, I relied on editors to help me uh, make it sound pretty. I'm I'm not the great uh, narrative writer uh, that some are at the times. I will tell you that... uh, In our book, Daniel and I, I think, achieve uh, a greater narrative writing because the two of us work so hard to improve the other's work. And uh, uh, I would write, he would edit, he would write, I would edit, then we'd do it again. Uh, So uh, we think it turned out pretty good. Well, Daniel, with that sort of uh, compliment, let's, let's hear a little bit about your background and how you got into the industry. Well, sure. Like Jeff, I'd also like to thank you for uh, having us on today. It's uh, really nice to talk with you uh, about the book. And um, I'd like to first start, Jeff just said, 
you know, that he's an adequate writer. I'd like to say that Jeff is actually a fantastic writer and a fantastic researcher. Um, you know, working with him on this has been a lot of fun and, and certainly very educational for me to be able to work with somebody who's such a fantastic investigator and uh, teach me some some things that I never knew and and really get to to learn how he worked and uh, it's greatly improved my work. Um, you know, I I started out uh, in college. I was I went to the University of Virginia. And while I was there, I was a pre-med student, uh, but also uh, an English literature major. And I think it was my senior year, I was kind of thinking about starting to apply to medical schools. And a buddy of mine said, hey, do you want to uh, write an article for the local paper about like a tennis tournament or something? And I said, sure, I'll, I'll give that a try. And I went down and interviewed a few people. And I remember just being there and uh, you know, there's no great shakes, there's no, no big story, but just going up to people saying, hey, I'm a reporter and asking them questions. And then people just start talking to you and telling you these great stories. And I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. I, I got to check that out. And so uh, when uh, I graduated, I uh, started looking, you know, because I'd been pre-med uh, at some science writing jobs. And I found a science writing job listing out in Marin County, California, which was, you know, the opposite coast and uh, sounded like a really interesting gig, looked it up, applied for it and heard back a few weeks later that the job had been filled. But uh, having looked it up, I was researching the area, uh, West Marin County, and found out that there's a community weekly there, which is one of the and maybe the only community weekly that's won the public service Pulitzer, the Point Reyes Light newspaper, uh, which won in, I believe it was 1979 for their writings on a cult called Synanon. Um, so I called up that newspaper and talked to the editor, the guy who had actually done all the stories and won that Pulitzer, uh, a man named Dave Mitchell, and told him, you know, I'm interested in getting into newspaper reporting. I've written basically one article uh, would you give me an internship? And he said, sure, come on out. So, you know, a few weeks later, I packed up my car and drove west and worked at this little newspaper where uh, I did everything from write stories to take pictures to help lay out the paper once a week. Uh, and then once the paper was done, I packed them up in my uh, 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 beat up car and uh, drove around and delivered the papers to little general stores up and down Highway One. I like to say that I have the had the most beautiful newspaper delivery route in the country. It was pretty awesome. After that, you know, I stayed there for a little bit. Got a job at a local wire service in San Francisco uh, that kind of services all of the local television stations. Uh, 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 also, you know, people who are looking, uh, national news outlets who are trying to monitor what's going on in San Francisco or subscribers and work the overnight shift there. So kind of learned how to talk to uh, police dispatchers and uh, various first responders to figure out what's going on on a breaking news story um, and did that for a little while, but also had sort of gotten involved just on the side with shooting video. You know, I always had enjoyed shooting photographs, but started shooting video and decided that, you know, I was 
kind of interested in that and learned about the journalism school at Berkeley, went there and uh, got into the documentary film program there. Um, it's one of the few doc programs that's at a journalism school and not in a film school. So it has a real grounding in uh, strong reporting and uh, making sure that you get the story right, not just tell a great visual story. And uh, studied there, did a thesis film on uh, an assassination uh, in El Salvador of Archbishop Oscar Romero and a guy who had actually arranged his assassination, moved to California and became a used car salesman in Modesto, a small town in the Central Valley. And so, you know, I guess I've always had an interest in, in crime reporting. After I graduated, I kind of made a detour uh, and worked on a show that kind of became a sort of comedy show uh, at Current TV, which was a network that Al Gore started uh, in the early 2000s. And I worked there with one of the um, women who was a creator of The Daily Show. And we uh, started a show called Infomania, which was once called The Daily Show's Wise-Ass Kid Brother. So it was kind of a budget version of The Daily Show, but learned a lot there too about making television and getting things done and getting things out the door and um, did that for a couple of years and then moved to Chicago uh, with the woman who I later married. Um, when I got there, I found I hooked up with a production company called Curtis Productions, which uh, has been doing, it's Bill Curtis has been doing uh, cable uh, crime documentaries basically since there's been cable. And uh, American Greed is a show that profiles white collar crime for CNBC and started off doing a couple episodes for them and eventually landed on this story, uh, the story of John Cody which is how I met Jeff and uh, how we eventually teamed up and decided to write this book. Of these uh, many different storytelling mediums that you've had experience in, do you have a favorite or um, as you look at them all, you know, video, pen and paper, is there one that has an advantage inherently over the other and, and you gravitated toward it for a specific reason or is it all kind of, six of one, half a dozen of the other. How do you, how do you rate these different mediums? Uh, yeah, I mean, I enjoy working in all of these different medium. Uh, you know, working in documentary is great because you're, there's such a technical aspect to it too. And, you know, you're telling a story, but you're also telling it visually versus when you uh, are just writing for the page, you know, you have to really evoke what people are seeing. Um, but at the same time, when you're writing for the page, there's uh, an ability to go in depth that is really, really difficult in television. Where you know you got to you got to simplify things so that people get it. The written word is uh, probably the the best way in journalism to uh, explain deeper concepts or harder to understand stories. So the book is Call Me Commander, a former intelligence officer and the journalist who uncovered his scheme to fleece America. Jeff, you were the journalist, the original journalist that, that got onto this story. Um, so in the book, it's described how you had, you had uh, tracked down this guy who for now I'll call him the commander and you were trying to get him to, I think, go on the record about another story you were working on. But describe that first interaction with this man and 
and right away your BS meter um, shot up that something was amiss here. Talk us through that first interaction and what about the whole thing kind of gave you the sense that something wasn't wasn't quite right? Well, first of all, I was working on a story on something else. I had opened a file on a county commission candidate uh, who had some uh, questionable fundraising activities. And uh, I was checking his entire background. I believe you should build a file uh, on your subject and let the documents take you where they take you. And uh, one of the things I discovered was that he had a Navy career that he had claimed was very distinguished and uh, lengthy and uh, uh, he was very proud of. And he always talked about it at uh, campaign rallies. And so I checked this out. Journalists check things out to see if they're true or not. Well, his discharge papers, which I was able to get, showed that he'd gone into the Navy at age 17 and come out five weeks later. That's not long or or distinguished. And uh, this became what I thought was uh, the first story I was going to do on this uh, candidate. And to round out that story, I checked through his campaign contributions, and I saw that he had received uh, check for $500 from a group called the U.S. Navy Veterans Association. And I said to myself, well, geez, they've written a campaign check to this fellow thinking that he's a true blue Navy guy uh, with a distinguished Navy career. And I'll bet you they give me a great quote if I talk to him and tell him his Navy career is phony. So I thought I was going to go get a nice little quote from uh, this group. And I called Washington uh, for the number, uh, with the number for the Navy veterans. Uh, They referred me to their uh, uh, director of development, who, lo and behold, lived in Tampa, probably about a 15 or 20-minute drive from the office. And his name was Bobby Thompson. So I was going to go see this guy and talk to him about this check that they'd written to this candidate. And I expected to go uh, to be sort of uh, welcomed uh, with this uh, new information uh, to get a nice little quote uh, for the bottom of my story and to be sent on my way. And um, maybe key to the way I do things is I don't make phone calls when I can drive somewhere and talk to somebody face-to-face. And this was the case in uh, August 2009 when I got in my car and I drove out to Ybor City uh, to the address I had for Commander Bobby Thompson, uh, U.S. Navy Uh, reserve uh, retired. And I got to the address and I did a somewhat of a double take because what I'd come to was a really rundown duplex across the street from a, uh, an old uh, shuttered uh, cigar factory. Uh, It was not what I expected to see uh, for the residence of a retired Navy commander at all. Um, outside, uh, as it happened that morning, about 10 in the morning, uh, was, uh, Commander Thompson. He was on his cell phone. He was out on the sidewalk talking to somebody and he said, yeah, make sure you just send it to me, uh, Commander Bobby Thompson and such and such an address. And I walked up to him after he finished his phone call and I introduced myself and I said, I wanted to talk to you about uh, the check he wrote to the county commission c- candidate. Uh, Unbeknownst to me, uh, Commander Thompson 
was a newspaper reader that was very familiar with my byline. And he knew that nothing good comes from talking to an investigative reporter of my ilk, particularly given his, uh, at that point, secret background. And uh, what sort of set me off uh, during this uh, probably half-hour confrontation was that he was just openly hostile toward me. And there was no reason for him to be that way. Um, and uh, he was curt. He was uh, hostile. He was combative. Uh, he, in essence, threw me off his property uh, before he went into back into his duplex. And I left really puzzled about the entire matter. And I kind of uh, rolled that over my head for a little bit. And I, as I think I said in the book, I wondered if I'd kind of accidentally pulled on a thread of something that might unravel later on. I came back to the office. I sat down with uh, my longtime research partner, uh, co-author of uh, the series we ultimately wrote, a fellow named John Martin, uh, best person I know to uh, pull open a database and find out who someone is or where they are or if they exist. And he said to me, he knew I was going out on this. He'd done a little preliminary work for me. And he said, uh, how'd it go? And I said, not the way I expected. And I said, I think we ought to dig a little deeper on this. I just have a funny feeling about the guy I talked to. And he said, all right. And he called up the uh, the website for the U.S. Navy veterans. It runs 2,500 pages. It's uh, pretty pretty darn expensive and impressive. Uh, it's old school uh, as far as its look, but it is filled with information. And on the very opening page, you get the board of directors. Here's this nonprofit. It's got 60 or 65,000 members, and there's their executive board. And right there at the top is the CEO by the name of Jack Nimitz. And John said, hmm, Nimitz, it's, it's, it's the Navy family. I wonder if he's related to Chester who was the famous uh, Navy hero of World War II. And there's a picture of Jack in his uh, striped tie and his uh, blazer, and there's nothing fake looking about that at all, except if you check. And John began to check, and I don't think he checked for more than a day, maybe a day and a half. And he said, I'm not finding Jack Nimitz. This guy was an investor that was supposed to be a retired Navy living in Texas, and there was no sign of him. Jack Nimitz had never uh, owned property, had a divorce, uh, had a lien put against him, written a letter to the editor, or anything else. And John's uh, sort of uh, benchmark quote on this was, I could tell you, a guy that runs a 65,000 National Veterans Charity does not live off the grid. And that was our instinct, is that uh, uh, if this is a real guy, you can find him, you can call him up, and you can talk to him. And it was just a hunch at that point, but then we began to uh, check others. Uh, and uh, we found no one except Commander Bobby Thompson. That's how this whole story got started. We got an okay from an editor uh, who appreciated our instincts on this and trusted us uh, by the name of Richard Bachman in St. Petersburg. We told him what we'd kind of stumbled into, and he said, well, let's see what we can find. 
And uh, what uh, launched that day uh, was uh, about a seven-month investigation uh, into the U.S. Navy Veterans Association. You alluded uh, to this website, this 2,500-page website, which in some respects looked authentic and then kind of at second glance looked a little bit fishy. And I wondered if you could do two things for me. Describe what exactly about it seemed a little bit off. And then secondly, um, how big a role did that website play kind of as the front door to this whole con as you look at it in the grand scheme? Well, it was huge. It was the primary document that we began to work with, uh, you know, as we went forward. 2,500 pages. And you would say to yourself, how does someone create a 2,500-page website filled with data, with uh, uh, names and places and uh, contribution uh, histories and uh, tax documents? Uh, that that is That can't be true. And so you you kind of had to take it a page at a time, and we did. And John started with the executive board, and uh, you know we went forward with that. Now, as far as the look of the site, I believe it was Lycos that was the search engine on that, uh, or the uh, server for that particular website, which was strictly at that point, even in uh, this era, twenty two oh nine, was pretty much old school. It had a lot of a sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, rinky-dink stuff like uh, uh, animations of, uh, you know, uh, jets taking off aircraft carriers and uh, World War II songs and a lot of really kind of over-the-top verbiage about uh, uh, Al-Qaeda and, uh, you know, the Muslim uh, uh, threat to America and it was very, very right wing, um, uh, which d- didn't make it uh, uh, counterfeit, uh, but it did sort of suggest to us that it was uh, amateurish, uh, and uh, as, as we would as we would later learn much later, it was uh, uh, strictly the work of one man and a very fertile imagination. Let me chime in. I mean, one of the things too that's on there that's pretty incredible is he has. Pages and pages, pages of what he calls his newsstand. This is Bobby Thompson, which are news articles about what was going on in, say, 2004 to 2009. And as Jeff said, it's all war on terror related stuff. But it's these deeply written articles about, you know, what's going on in Afghanistan. Um, but then it would allude to something that had happened in the 70s in the Philippines. Um, and each of these articles, would have, I mean, some of them were repeated, but there were different bylines. So they didn't all say by Bobby Thompson. And Jeff might remember some of the names on the bylines, but there were like 10 different supposed reporters who were writing all of these articles. So again, at first glance, if you look at it, you think, you know, I guess maybe this could be this big charity that uh, has somebody making sort of this online newsletter to update their members on what's going on in the war on terror. Um, and yes, it was, as Jeff said, a little rinky dink. I like to say pretty, pretty grassroots looking, uh, but there was a lot there and certainly a lot there that might make you think if you just kind of glanced at it, as I think 
a lot of people did when they got a call from a solicitor asking for a contribution to the Navy Veterans Association. You know, you fire up your uh, computer, you take a look at it, and you probably don't spend a ton of time on it, but you see that there's a lot of information there and it seems legit. So I think that's what the point was. And uh, I think that it pulled it off for those people who only were wanting to take a uh, surface look at, at what was up on the website. And so, so Jeff, you and, and the team at the St. Petersburg Times, and I love, by the way, there's a reference in the book to uh, you guys formed a mini posse, which I thought is a really cool way to think of yourselves as, as an investigative team. But you, you, you dug into this, you spent six or seven months looking into the U.S. Navy Veterans Association and to this guy, Commander Bobby Thompson. And what you found was basically the whole thing was a hoax, you know, left, right, and center. But yet, in certain places, there were there was some authenticity. There was actual real life money being being sent in the form of campaign contributions and donations to certain causes. So it was like eighty percent hoax and twenty percent call it paper trail or call it real money. Could you speak to that and how it was kind of a just a strange juxtaposition where you where you have this. Again, so many things are are phony and fake, but yet real money had been given to different candidates for office and different different uh, right wing causes. Well, it was a mixed bag for sure, and uh, I, I will tell you one of the we we were the posse was was hard on the trail of uh, this desperado, and uh, we we thought we were on onto this and that this was going to be easy. And then you begin to check a little bit further and you find out that, um, well, he's got, he's got some lawyers and we need to contact the lawyers and talk to them. And the lawyers turned out to be Helen McMurray, the former uh, deputy attorney general in charge of consumer protection for the state of Ohio and her partner, Betty Montgomery, the former attorney general, uh, well-respected of the state of Ohio, and Captain Samuel Wright, a uh, well-published uh, uh, labor rights uh, lawyer and uh, Navy captain with a, with a long, uh, verifiable history. And you say to yourself, man, what have I stepped into here? Because these people, these are, these are the real deal. These are real legal beagles. Uh, they're the uh, super lawyers uh, that are representing this guy. And if, if this is a con, would they be involved in it? And so you took a step back from it, uh, ultimately, but you, but then you plowed ahead. You're, you're correct to, to recall that there, was, there were real, verifiable uh, contributions made by this nonprofit. Um, you know, he was paying... Uh, Five or ten thousand to fly a, uh, uh, you know, a uh, veteran who had an accident uh, back to his home. He was buying a uh, outfitted van for a, a veteran who'd lost his legs in uh, Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, he was paying twenty thousand dollars to an outfit uh, that made uh, uh, clothing for disabled vets, and it, this was this was all verifiable. It became what I believed uh, and began to call was window dressing because probably 95 or 98 percent 
of the money that supposedly came in couldn't be verified. And one of the things that uh, could not be verified and that they refused to verify uh, was uh, uh, the millions of dollars they supposedly spent on care kits, personal care items, cigarettes and, and uh, shaving cream and, and uh, whatever in care kits that were shipped to troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they claimed to be sending these out by the thousands. And we asked to see the receipts for these uh, care kits and uh, uh, some shipping invoices. And they said, well, these these are spread in, across the country in so many uh, warehouses, we couldn't possibly break them out unless you paid us uh, thousands of dollars, uh, you know, to uh, uh, pay for the expense of doing that. And so that was that was a little off-putting. Um, in the midst of uh, checking through the officers, you know, ultimately, we, uh, John Martin primarily, the research uh, guru, uh, spent uh, months trying to run down 80 officers of uh, the state officers and the executive board of the U.S. Navy Veterans Association and didn't come up with one. Um, and, well, he did come up with one, Bobby Thompson. Um, we checked the military records for Bobby Thompson. We drew a blank there and couldn't uh, find any military record for Bobby Thompson. Another thing we did was to call the uh, uh, office. Uh, it had uh, the Navy veterans had its uh, headquarters and its uh, office suite at M Street in Washington D.C. A couple of a few blocks from the state capitol. Really, really Tony address, and you kind of envision a big, uh, a spacious office suite uh, where uh, Nimitz and the rest are are coming in and holding board meetings and that kind of thing. And you would call, as I did over a, about a week's time, uh, that office uh, uh, several times a day, asking for various officers. Is is uh, is uh, Mr. Nimitz in? Is Mr. Reagan in? And uh, someone, it turned out to be, uh, well, I'll say it was a receptionist, uh, would answer the phone and would check and say, well, no, Mr. Nimitz is not in right now. Well, do you expect him in later? Well, I don't have a schedule in front of me, she would say, and and um, I don't know if he's going to be in or not. Would you like to leave a message? And this, I did this and took notes on this and logged this in repeatedly. Well, no one was ever there. And yet the receptionist was saying, well, he's not in today, uh, but he might be in later. So finally, I called a colleague up in our Washington Bureau and I said, would you run down to the U.S. Navy Veterans Office Suite on M Street and knock on the door and see what's going on there? About an hour later, he sent me a picture of a rented mailbox at a strip center, uh, uh, you know, set of, of, of uh, businesses. And it was nothing but a rented mailbox. The address we thought was an office suite. And where a receptionist said people were, you know, officers were coming to work was nothing but a single rented mailbox. So we knew something was up now, uh, despite the attorneys, despite the website, despite the window dressing contributions, we knew something was up. So, so you and the team with the St. Peter, Petersburg Times spend like six, seven months on this. Then in March, late March of 2010, you publish your first story 
about the U.S. Navy Veterans Association. During that time, you guys formed basically what you referred to as three theories about what might be going on as it pertains to this guy, Bobby Thompson. Explain to us what those three theories were and and if you had a hunch, which one seemed like the most reasonable at the time? Well, John and I, uh, frankly, grew obsessed with this story. And we uh, were, we were best friends uh, and colleagues and uh, played golf together. And uh, each had children and a similar interest. And uh, almost daily, we had lunch at a local deli in South Tampa. And we would, as I say, chew over this story. And figure out uh, in our heads where it was going next and what it was all about. And we developed three theories. And the first theory was uh, about uh, Commander Thompson. It was the lone wolf theory. Uh, This guy has no discernible background that we can find. He has no uh, military history that we can uh, confirm. Uh, He won't talk to us anymore. He's uh, holed up in a, a, a ramshackle duplex, claiming, claiming to be a Navy commander, uh, and he's got no history. Uh, who is he? And we, the first theory was the lone wolf theory. This guy is a fugitive uh, from somewhere, uh, from something, and he's uh, come here to Tampa. So many of our con men come to Florida and set up their cons. And this guy is, that that's what he is. This is the uh, the window dressing that he's immersed himself in is the Navy Veterans Association. When we uh, figure out that his funds were derived from uh, bona fide, big time telemarketing companies, uh, we, Looked into that a little bit further, and we 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 learned pretty quickly uh, through the contracts that were uh, filed with various state agencies uh, around the country that the telemarketing companies were keeping the lion's share of the money they collected. If they called you and got a dollar for a contribution, they would keep eighty or ninety percent of it. And we said, "Well, geez, the Navy Veterans Association is a cause." that is allowing the Navy, uh, allowing the telemarketers to, to make a lot of money. And uh, maybe uh, he's just a tool of, uh, Bobby Thompson is just a tool of the telemarketers. Maybe he's just a, a guy that's set there to, to uh, pitch the cause so that they'll have something to fundraise for. And so this was theory number two, tool of the telemarketers. And then we, by chance, discovered that uh, somebody, one of the state agencies uh, that we checked, sent us a copy of something that uh, Commander Thompson had sent to them, which was namely a picture of uh, Thompson standing with George Bush uh, in a White House photo op. And we really kind of said, wow, we, what's going on here? And we began to then dive into political contributions. You remember the first reason I ever had to go to his door was a political contribution. Turns out he'd written hundreds of thousands of dollars in checks to uh, political people from the mayor to the county commission, to the Senate, to the senatorial uh, committee, to the president of the United States, and in turn had 
been invited up to stand with the president, have his picture taken. And we said, what's up with this? This guy looks like a con, but he's uh, standing with the president of the United States. And he's doing the bidding of, at that time, George Bush's uh, war on terror, you could argue. Uh, so we, the third theory we developed was the dark, uh, the dark money political uh, conspiracy theory. And, and which one of these uh, theories uh, John and I would ch- sort of chew over at lunch uh, is, is the one that best describes, you know, who this guy is. So, uh, Daniel, explain to me then when you got involved in this story, how much you uh, had heard beforehand, and then kind of explain to me the cutoff of how far the uh, the team at the St. Petersburg Times had taken the story before your involvement. Sure. Well, as I think I mentioned, I first encountered this story for an episode of American Greed in 2014. And Jeff, when had you, when was your last byline on this? I can't remember. 2010, 11? Yeah, it was late 2010. I actually retired in 2011 after 33 years. So so, so Jeff had sort of uh, <laughs> done all of the great work he had done. And then one of his colleagues had followed the story. Uh, well, both John Martin and a reporter named Chris Hundley had followed the story of Bobby Thompson on the run and then Bobby Thompson getting caught. And then a little bit of Bobby Thompson uh, is actually John Cody uh, and then the trial of John Cody slash Bobby Thompson. And so when I was assigned the story, I had, I think I had seen and read a newspaper article about it at the time that he had had been arrested, but really didn't know much about it. You know, the way American Greed works, sometimes it's an episode, a story idea that I'll pitch to uh, to the executive producer and to the network. Sometimes it's something that they say, hey, we want to do an episode on this, go for it. Uh, and in this case, that's what it was. This sounds like a good story, go for it. And um, so I really didn't know much. Uh, and you know, one of the things, of course, that I start doing is just reading all the clips and you know, read Jeff's amazing reporting because that's really where the story starts. And then called Jeff and I talked to Jeff and John Martin uh, way back in early 2014, I believe it was. And honestly, it was those conversations that really got me hooked on the story because, you know, so often with the type of reporting I do, which is really, um, you know, greed, we American greed, we, we do stories on people who have already been caught. And are already been have already been tried and are already in prison, and you know the person's motive is usually pretty obvious. I mean, the the name of the show says it all: American greed. Well, this case was completely different. I mean, yes, Bobby Thompson had used his charity to steal millions of dollars, but he did it while living in the duplex that Jeff visited, uh, and he wasn't our typical American greed. Uh, subject. He wasn't, he didn't have what I like to call the American greed starter kit, the uh, net jets, the yacht, and the big McMansion, uh, often somewhere in Florida. I mean, he lived in a really beat up place that I got to go inside of and just see how terrible it was. 
he didn't drive. He didn't drive, so he didn't have any cars. Um, and there was just something odd about him. And then talking to Jeff, you know, Jeff said, basically said to me, this guy is still a mystery. And, you know, he had done such amazing work, but there was still so much mystery to be solved about uh, Bobby Thompson slash John Cody, who he was, where he had come from. And part of what added to that was, you know, after Jeff had had put down the story, um, it was revealed that Bobby Thompson was actually John Cody, a Harvard uh, Law School uh, graduate, uh, an Army intelligence captain, and uh, a really brilliant guy who, again, why and how had that guy left the uh, potentially successful path that uh, Harvard Law School graduates usually go down and entered this life of crime. It just didn't really make sense. And, um, you know, having talked to Jeff and then having talked to some of the U.S. Marshals who investigated it, they too, you know, usually those are the first guys to say, we've got this case completely solved. Well, they told me there's still a lot about this that we don't understand. Uh, and so, uh, the same way that Jeff said he and John had been obsessed with the case, I, I guess I became obsessed with it too, trying to figure out who was John Cody really and where had he really come from and how had he become Commander Bobby Thompson. Were you at any point, were you ever able to approach um, John Cody about going on camera? And if so, what did, what did that, uh, how did that go? Yeah, I mean – you know, for American Greed, we always try to talk to people and write them letters in prison. And me and other people tried to uh, speak to him numerous times. And, you know, he likes to play footsie with various members of the media. And he sent us letters and, um, but never did agree to go on camera uh, for American Greed. And, you know, we, after that was done, and I decided to pick up this book and continue to report it, uh, we've corresponded via the mail. Um, you know, sometimes I'll be sitting, I would be sitting at my desk and in would come 15 different, different envelopes on one day from him. Um, sometimes things di written directly to me, sometimes copies of letters that he had sent to other reporters. Uh, you know, and, and I think that when you get that volume of mail, uh, sometimes, the uh, urge would maybe just be to toss it out. And, you know, a lot of times there would be a lot of junk in there, but every time there would be one nugget that would lead, that would be a little clue um, that might point my reporting in another direction. And I think it's something that uh, both of us learned about John Cody uh, is that uh, he writes a lot. He likes to hear himself talk through his letters but it's really worth it to, to read everything he writes because there's often a nugget of truth in there or some type of nugget that will lead you in a direction that might help you uh, uncover uh, the truth hidden amongst all of his uh, uh, untruths. There's this uh, roughly 15-year period in, in John Cody slash Bobby Thompson's existence where uh, at least in the American Greed piece, at the time that was that was published, there was just there were so many unknowns about who this guy was, 
And that period was sometime in the early 80s up to about 1998 when he started to surface as Bobby Thompson for this U.S. Navy Veterans Association. What can you say about what is or isn't known about that 15-year period today? Sure. I mean, so after Cody was arrested, uh, he started to claim, you know, he really was, and it said so on his FBI wanted poster, that he was a uh, former army intelligence, but he started to claim that he had worked at CIA and uh, at some point in his life. And he claimed that the Navy Veterans Association was actually an intelligence operation or a White House GOP directed operation. Um, and he claimed that, so, so he had first disappeared from a little town in Arizona called Sierra Vista which is right along the Mexican border. Uh, there's not much there except for a huge army intelligence base. He had showed up there in 1980 and then disappeared mysteriously in 1984. Uh, at that time, or a few years later, he was indicted by the feds for uh, charges related to absconding with uh, about $100,000 stolen from some clients. Uh, when the FBI put out a wanted poster uh, you know, they said that he was wanted for uh, that fraud, but they also said they wanted to question him in an ongoing espionage investigation. And so one of the things that he claimed was that, uh, as I said, after he left Arizona and then uh, in the years that, that followed, he had been working in the intelligence community and that he had been uh, working in that when he started his fake charity. And of course, this sounded totally far out. But one of the things that also sounded far out was his pronouncement that he had worked at uh, CIA. And, you know, it had really never been explored. And I was one of the first reporters to get his military records and take a close look at them and basically reported that out for quite a while. And in those records, there's many indications that he did work at or with the CIA at some point, uh, probably in the 1970s. And I also spoke to a source uh, who said the same thing. And so that kind of set off a lot of uh, uh, red flags for me or maybe interested in saying, okay, if people have denied that and people have, uh, and, and there does seem to be some truth to it, maybe it's worth looking at uh, you know, what is, what, what really went on in those 14 or 15 years? And can I find out what he was up to during that time? Is it possible that he really was working, had continued working for CIA at that time? Eventually looking at various records, uh, I was able to uncover what appear to be, or sorry, I was able to uncover, uh, a series of escalating charity frauds, uh, that, Cody had been involved in after he left Sierra Vista in 1984, uh, some that were in uh, Canada, and then some following uh, similar ones that occurred uh, in the Seattle area in the 1990s um, that kind of looked like they were precursors for uh, what he set up at the U.S. Navy Veterans Association in, in Tampa uh, in the late 1990s. So... Uh, and, and throughout those, 
you know, there are echoes of what he's always done, which is use his true intelligence past and sort of cloaked these in this story that there was, um, uh, that he had intelligence sources that were helping him on those charity efforts as well. Uh, you know, that was a major investigative undertaking to figure out where he had been for 14 years. You know, eventually I was able to find people and track down people who he had worked with in Canada and Seattle who looked at old pictures of him and said, yeah, this is the guy who was running an anti-drug charity in Vancouver. And yes, this is the guy who was running a series of, uh, what appear to be scam packs, uh, scam political action committees in Seattle in the mid 1990s. And in each of those, it, you can really see the evolution of him as uh, a con artist building up to what would be his ultimate uh, charity scheme, uh, the United States Navy Veterans Association. There's a there's a scene in the book that I really enjoy, and it, it happened to you, Jeff. You were seated around the dinner table one night, and the phone rang, and it was a telemarketer calling from the U.S. Navy Veterans Association, and you took the call, and you answered some questions, and probed a little bit and eventually the caller uh ended up hanging up on you from what i understand um describe a little bit of that that moment and and maybe what your heart rate was doing at the time and then the other part b of that question is when this is all said and done as of today how much money did this guy end up conning average americans out of as best we know well i remember the call well uh it was a sunday night uh we were uh, about to have dinner the phone rang. My wife, uh, Nancy, took the call. Uh, it, uh, the caller must have said, uh, this is, I'm calling from the Navy Veterans Association. And uh, she, she, <laughs> she smiled. She looked at me and she said, I think you're going to want to take this call. <laughs> uh, she knew I was working on this story. So it was a telemarketer that went through the pitch. And it was, uh, you know, uh, uh, our veterans and our uh, active duty service members uh, are uh, giving their all to uh, provide the freedom that we enjoy. Uh, can you do a little something to help them? And, uh, you know, I took this call to the uh, where, where I, I wanted to go and where too many uh, recipients of the calls don't take it, which is to say, uh, who are you really and what are you getting? And, of course, it's not somebody with the Navy Veterans Association. It's a telemarker that's hired by them. And when you ask them, well, what is your percentage that you will take on a contribution I make? That's when you're handed to a uh, so-called floor manager uh, who eventually is going to hang up on you. Uh, the value of this call was, and we used it, I believe we set the original story, uh, which was called Under the Radar, uh, up with this uh, anecdote. You know, uh, it's 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 a summer it's a summer evening, and a uh, uh, a call comes to a, a suburban home. It's a pitch from a, a telemarketer sitting in a uh, a boiler operation uh, two thousand miles away. Uh, they're asking for. Uh, uh, money for a, for a good uh, sounding uh, charitable cause, the U.S. Navy Veterans Association. So we didn't we didn't have to guess at this. I had the first person, you know, uh, experience of taking that call. So it was invaluable, and it was also 
I think the word I used is providential. Uh, what is the, uh, what's the chance I'm going to get called uh, the one investigative reporter in uh, the world uh, that is uh, working on a story about this group that I'm going to get a call from this uh, outfit, uh, their telemarketing arm. So it was, uh, uh, it was a good thing to have. Um, we never did quite figure out how much money came in. Uh, one of the first things uh, we did when, and this is uh, sort of uh, uh, A, uh, plan A, when you uh, begin uh, investigating a nonprofit, you ask for their tax returns. Federal law says that a nonprofit has to turn over the first, uh, the last three years of uh, the 990 tax returns to anybody that asked for them. And uh, so you do. And you begin to look at the uh, the revenue and the expense and the line items and uh, the related parties. And you f- might find out if they have a telemarketing company and what their cut is and uh, who their uh, uh, contributions are going uh, toward and that sort of thing. Well, w- one of the first things that really s- set our uh, BS meter off was that uh, Thompson, the Navy veterans, refused to provide, and in and, and violation of law, refused to provide the, the copies of 990s. Uh, plan B, uh, when you can't get, uh, when you encounter a situation like this and you can't get uh, from the source the, the 990 tax returns, you, you, you ask the IRS for them. And so we began to write the IRS and said, you know, we want the tax returns for the U.S. Navy veterans and their affiliated 41 chapters and these would begin filtering into the office at the newsroom in Tampa. And I would begin to stack these things up around my cubicle to it looked like I was in a fortress. Uh, I mean, it was so voluminous. Uh, Commander Thompson had filed his tax returns uh, duly on every one of his uh, affiliated groups over years. Uh, and I, frankly, I can't imagine the the amount of time it must have taken him to do that, but he did it. And when I would uh, begin to add up the tax returns and I would begin to uh, tell John Martin and my pal, I would say, uh, all right, we're up to 80 million in uh, uh, income and we're up to 90 million. And finally, we we hit the magic figure. We, we got a tax return in that put him over 100 million. And which gave us the ability to write a line in the story that said the Navy veterans has reported it has received more than $100 million in income in the, since uh, inception. We uh, discounted the information in the tax returns. We didn't find it credible. We thought it was uh, something that uh, sprung from the imagination of uh, uh, Commander Thompson and was uh, used to impress people with uh, how big the uh, organization was. We did later find that uh, telemarketers uh, filed reports with uh, various state regulators of the amount that they uh, uh, were able to bring in through their soliciting efforts. And we think that it's uh, probably closer to $30 million, uh, was uh, what was brought in, uh, remembering that the telemarketer uh, on their contracts uh, kept 80 or 90% of uh, what came in. That still still left quite a bit of money uh, for the commander to do what he had to do. 
let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the book collaboration. I'd like to know um, kind of two things in particular. Whose idea was it to turn this reporting into a book? And then uh, how long did it take the two of you working together to, to actually write the book? Yeah, I think uh, after I had finished my show, uh, as I said, there was still a lot of mystery behind what was going on and what was the full story here. And so I continued to kind of report it on the side, just trying to piece together this and that and realize just what a big story this was. And every now and then I would kind of call Jeff, who had at that point retired into the mountains of North Carolina and say, hey, listen to this that I found. And uh, at first, I think he was kind of, um, I don't know, how would you describe it, Jeff? Uh, I mean, he was he was always kind. But I think a lot of it was sort of this far out stuff that I was starting to find about Cody's real background. And uh, what was your reaction, Jeff? Well, I was busy trying to perfect my golf swing, Uh, you know, and uh, this guy calls me and uh, says, why don't we collaborate on uh, this story? Uh, There's there's a lot that's not known about it. And, uh, you know, you persuaded me. the phrase uh, that uh, Daniel uses is that, uh, in talking to me, is you're the one guy that found this guy and showed what he was not. I'm going to be the guy, or will be the people that will show what he is. And I think we successfully pulled that off. And then, frank, uh, frankly, the it there are two parts to this, and and. Uh, I, along with uh, John Martin in, uh, in St. Pete, uh, with what is now called the Tampa Bay Times, did in fact show that this was a sham charity, uh, did put this guy on the run, uh, did uh, suggest that he was not who he said he was, uh, but that certainly he was no retired Navy commander uh, running a 66,000-person charity. Uh, then we fell back on the three theories. It was he a lone wolf? Was he a tool of the telemarketers? Was he uh, in some dark money political conspiracy? And that's where Daniel came in and did the work he did, uh, which uh, delved into the dark period, the 15-year, the missing uh, period of his life, which uh, uh, I think, and I I think we both agree, proved that uh, while the commander used the alibi all along that he was an F, uh, a CIA uh, operative uh, doing, on a mission. Uh, the dark period revelations uh, where he was just running charity cons and perfecting the one he would set up in Tampa uh, is, is the key to what went on here. Uh, sure, he, he had a CIA background but he had a much, much bigger uh, background as a con man. And uh, ultimately, uh, that's what he was. There's a, a review of your book, um, which I think is great, from Frank Abagnale, who famously was the hero, all, the con man, the con man hero, I should say, of Catch Me If You Can. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but he alludes to this being a cautionary tale and kind of what can happen if there are no journalists in the world left to investigate cons like this. And I wondered if the two of you could speak to 
how important it is to have a watchdog out there um, keeping keeping the rest of us notified about what's really going on. Because as you both know, newspapers are, are dying left and right, and we, we're starting to lose some of that watchdog role. And I wondered if you could speak to its value in, in a free society. I mean, I think it's absolutely essential. I'm sure that there are uh, cons, maybe not to the extent of uh, uh, Bobby Thompson and the U.S. Navy Veterans Association, but I think that there are similar charity cons going on as we speak. And if there aren't reporters uh, like Jeff, like John Martin at local newspapers to ferret them out, then they're just going to keep stealing millions of dollars from uh, hardworking Americans who uh, want to donate to what sounds like a good cause, uh, which I think is why it's essential that people subscribe to their newspapers and support local journalism. Uh, of course, there is wonderful investigative reporting at the national level and wonderful reporting uh, at the local level, but it's hard to do. Uh, it's expensive. Uh, and if it's not supported, then uh, bad actors like Bobby Thompson are going to continue to get away with it. Corrupt politicians are going to get away with what they get away with. And uh, uh, so subscribe to your local paper. Yeah, I would, I would add that um, Thompson came to Tampa in 1998, put, up, put together a website, began to file paperwork, hired attorneys, hired telemarketers, uh, crossed the T's, dotted the I's, filed his tax returns, and uh, got to business. And the, the millions of dollars flowed in to him uh, in what was a, a grand illusion. Uh, frankly, it was a, a, a brilliant uh, execution. Uh, of a uh, grand illusion, and it uh, was something that the regulators never caught, uh, the IRS never noticed, the politicians uh, never caught it, the telemarketers who checked and looked at the website and supposedly uh, checked his background never uh, saw it, even his crack attorneys, uh, prominent. Uh, super lawyers uh, with years of experience uh, prosecuting consumer fraud in their own way uh, evidently didn't get it, didn't see through it. And it was only, uh, frankly, the luck of a uh, newspaper reporter, and I'll say the word luck, it was uh, pretty darn lucky, you know, that I had the uh, uh, curiosity to check a campaign uh, contribution on another story and drive out to see the guy who made it and then come back and tell my research pal something funny going on here that led to this story. Otherwise, Bobby Thompson uh, would still be at it and uh, the, the American public would still be built uh, to the tune of millions of dollars a year. And so um, we argue and we think, uh, Daniel and I believe that uh, well, what is this story about? It's about a master con man. It's a story of intrigue. It's a crime story. It's a chase story. Uh, but you know what? It's also a story about journalism. And uh, what is the role of journalists in determining what is true and what is counterfeit? And uh, at my paper, we started the PolitiFact, 
which one appeals to prize and is dedicated to nothing but determining what is true and what is not. And at the end of the day, that's what this story is, a story that reveals and pulls back the veil on something that was a complete uh, fakery uh, that, uh, as we say, fleeced America for years. Last question I have, and I want to ask it to, to each of you, of all the unanswered questions still out there, what part of this whole saga is most confounding to you? What, what most doesn't add up? And, and what questions still kind of keep you up at night, if any? For me, it's, as I mentioned, when John Cody disappeared in 1984 from Arizona, a few years later, the FBI said that they uh, wanted to question him in an ongoing espionage investigation. Uh, when I have approached the FBI to ask them any questions about this case, uh, they still they told me in 2014, uh, they told the American Greed team in 2014 that they couldn't talk about the case for national security reasons, and they still won't say anything. Uh, so I would really like to know what the nature of, of that investigation was, uh, why he was wanted, uh, and of course, uh, it does look like he had uh, worked at the CIA at one point in his life, would like to know more about what he did there. But those are black boxes that are near impossible to uh, to penetrate. Well, for my part, we know uh, who John Cody is now. We know his, his background. We know uh, what he did and how he did it. And it took a long time, it took Daniel and I have four years to uh, piece together what we've got in uh, the book, uh, Call Me Commander. I don't know that either of us actually really uh, understands what motivated a person of this pedigree uh, to do what he did. Uh, we have we've we've offered up a couple of uh, a couple of theories, you know, that he's uh, you know kind of this uh, really really uh, far right. Uh, libertarian character that doesn't want anybody to tell him how to run his life and what to do. And he can uh, persuade anybody uh, of anything and be whoever he wants to. But there, I, I'm sort of uh, uh, do wonder if there is some other reason that this guy uh, didn't go straight and, and uh, use the, the brilliancy he had uh, to, you know, f for some other reason. And, um, I don't know that uh, Cody's going to tell us that either. I think he might, you know, he's he's in his uh, early 70s. He's uh, He's got 20 years, uh, you know, that he's doing up in an Ohio penitentiary. Uh, he's not going to live, uh, he's not going to leave prison alive. And I don't know that he's going to tell us uh, uh, that particular secret. And it's... Uh, uh, we know a lot. I don't know that we know everything. So the book is Call Me Commander, a former intelligence officer and the journalist who uncovered his scheme to fleece America. It's published by Potomac Books. It comes out in February of 2021, and it's, I believe, already available for pre-order. Is that correct? That is correct. Awesome. Uh, briefly, what was the experience like working with Potomac Books? Well, they bought it. <laughs> 
<laughs> they, they, we, we, uh, you know, you have this experience uh, as new authors. Uh, we're longtime journalists, but new authors of uh, uh, we we have we have a great agent, a guy by the name of Murray Weiss, and uh, you know he would uh, duly uh, send us uh, rejection notices, and it was it was a little uh, enraging, you know, to get these. Uh, uh, well, there's here's three more that did that passed on it. They really liked it, but they said it's just not their niche, you know. And it's like, come on, you know, come on, Murray. Uh, well, you know, and Murray would laugh about this, and uh, Murray would say, "Don't worry about it. You got a good story here." And he told us another story. He said, "You know, I had a I had a piece come in. It was a manuscript from an ex cop a few years back, and he said." Uh, I took it, and a lot of people passed on it. And, it, you know, the guy might have thought it wasn't going anywhere like you guys are afraid right now. And he said, but you know what? That book was published. And I'll tell you another thing. That book was sold to Hollywood, and it won an Oscar. And the name of that book was The Black Klansman. And uh, so we're like, well, I'd, yeah, geez, that makes us feel a little bit better. And then, of course, Potomac uh, – did buy the book. Uh, they, they agreed to publish it. Uh, you know, we uh, had an unusual but but positive experience where we were offered lots of suggestions, but were given uh, the trust uh, from the publisher to accept or reject most of the suggestions uh, in the publish in what was going to be the the published manuscript. Uh, so, uh, you know, and then we were given a, uh, contract copywriter, uh, who was just aces, uh, which, uh, kind of drove us crazy with, I don't know, 1500 suggestions, but, uh, n- none bad, you know, to, to improve, uh, stylistically and even fact check in a few places. So, um, you know, Potomac is, uh, a bit of a niche publisher because they do uh, nonfiction, they do political stuff, and that's what this is. So it fit uh, it fit their uh, particular portfolio, and we're we're glad to be with them, and uh, we're we're glad they had the faith in us uh, uh, to agree to publish the book. Well, I wish you uh, both good luck with the book. It's I can say from firsthand experience, it's a it's a fast read, it's a captivating read, it's it's well written, well researched, and um, very enjoyable. So, thank you both for writing it, and I wish you both um, good luck with the sales. And, and of course, thanks for coming on today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs>